industry financed research is not necessarily ooh, bad corporation capitalism. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. And this is something I had no idea. But being inside the environment, I realized that there are public researchers that are absolute crap. Sorry for my French. And uh, industrial financed researchers that are very interesting and very oriented towards the progress of society. Hi there, you're listening to another episode of the podcast What Are You Going To Do With That? of the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. As we are now in season three already, you probably know me by now. I'm Dani, and as a PhD student, I chat with early career researchers in the hope to get some tips and tricks for my own academic journey. Today we have a very special guest, if I could get a drum roll. It's our women rugby's team captain, the one and only Dr. Sara Giacopetti. When Sara, whose nickname is Jaka, is not on the field, you can find her in the lab. She is a lab manager um, who is currently looking for a new position or lab. So she is about to tell us how she got to where she is today, what she has studied before she got her PhD in material science and engineering, and how she figured out that this is what she wants to do. If you're interested in more stories that include dealing with struggles, but also managing successes, listen to our former episodes in season one and two, and check out our podcast social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. For tips and tricks that we have learned from our guests, have a look at our blog and YouTube channel. And don't forget to subscribe, follow, and like. Now, back to Sarah and her story. Sarah, or Jacka, has a BSc and an MSc in Materials Engineering and Nanotechnology from the Politecnico di Milano in Italy. I do hope I'm pronouncing it right. <laughs> you did. You mispronounced my surname. <laughs> oh, <laughs> again? What is yes, it? Jacopetti. Jacopetti. I'll Although try this nickname is Jacka, it doesn't matter. It's good enough. <laughs> it's close <laughs> enough. <laughs> cool. She has completed her PhD in material science and engineering in 2020 at the Technion in Israel. And she continued working as a manager and engineer at the Nano Electronic Materials and Devices Lab at the Technion as well. And she's currently looking for a job and most likely transferring to industry. And that's something we'll definitely talk about. So welcome, Jaka. I'm so glad that you were willing to be a guest on my podcast. I realized that I always knew that you were a doctor and you had the title, but I only saw you as a captain of our rugby team. And I got really curious about your life off of the field. So how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm home. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Then when we're in our natural environment and more relaxed, I'm also going to pour myself my regular drink, which is my Amaretto. And that's an Italian drink, isn't it? It's a Di Saronno, yes, I can see that. Mm -hmm. It's lovely stuff. and I miss it. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. What are you having today? I am having water because I've been forbidden literally everything else. <laughs> <laughs> and why is that? Because I am pretty much about to give birth. Yes, <laughs> I am so pregnant. I am so pregnant. I am so very pregnant. Actually, you knew me. You you knew me while I was already pregnant, right? 
Yeah, I don't know you not being pregnant. <laughs> You've, uh, we have never hit each other on the field, hugged, hugged each other very intensely on the field yet. <laughs> yeah, It's just no a tactics. matter of time. Give, give, give me a couple of months. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get there and that you'll be better at it than me too. <laughs> eh. All right, so cheers. Cheers. Maybe to a fast end of the pregnancy so you can have another drink and tackle again. Yes, to the next beer I will, uh, I will have, prob- or the next whiskey I will have probably in, in the birth room. <laughs> nice. Let me know about that. All right, so I'd like to start this episode with a few uh, short questions, as I usually do. And my first question is, are you an early bird or a night owl? A night owl. That was quick. That was really quick. <laughs> is that because you were... Uh, did that change during your studies, or is that something you've always been? No, I've always been. If I have to remember, I think even middle school, I've always been a night owl. But especially I remember in the high school, there were this... Uh, I'm a heavy procrastinator, obviously. <laughs> like half of the population listening to the, this podcast probably has the same mm-hmm. problem. Um, so I, I, always ha- I, I was always more active during the night. And I remember already in high school not studying so much. And then, oops, I have... A test tomorrow and doing the full night <laughs> so that's kind of student of shoving stuff in my head <laughs> all right um, my next question is more related to the rugby um, but also to you being a woman in stem are people more surprised you think when you tell them that you're a woman in stem and a doctor or when you tell them that you play on a female rugby team oh i have to admit they're more surprised when i tell them that i play rugby okay which is Amazing, because it means that women in STEM are not so surprising anymore, mm-hmm. which is wonderful, especially in... Uh, I mean, materials engineering is not seen as uh, masculine, as as patriarchal, as, as mechanical engineer or nuclear engineer. I do get some some weird looks when I said that my bachelor thesis in materials engineering was in the faculty of nuclear engineering. But uh, mm-hmm. it's not. Uh, it was just the department we were we were in. The, I didn't actually study nuclear <laughs> engineering. But also, they're more surprised. People are more surprised when uh, when I say I play rugby, also because I'm small. So usually they're <laughs> very surprised. They see me and it's like, "What you? You're playing rugby? Are you, are you kidding me?" <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I get that a lot too. So to continue on that question a little bit, but it is the next one. In what way would you be able to compare completing a PhD and playing a rugby game? Hmm. Um, very liberating in both cases. <laughs> like the part of completing the PhD is very liberating. <laughs> and the part of doing, of, of studying the PhD, of doing the PhD and, and playing rugby is... No, they're very different. Like PhD is always a constant struggle. Is it can be very individualistic, and rugby hardly ever is. Right. And you have to be responsible for your teammates, for who is above you, for who is uh, next to you, who, for who is in front of you. While um, I've noticed that in the PhD is much more independent. 
is is much it's much more solitary work that's right compared to the rugby field yeah interesting because I thought about this question before um, mm-hmm. obviously and I thought that it would be a bit sim- similar in the way that you have to be fit in order to be able to do it right like if you do a PhD you need to be able to have read a lot you need to be invested in your topic uh, to be able to have a good ending and if you play rugby you need to be fit in order to be able to tackle without getting injured and things like that that's actually a very good point yeah a comparison that i was able to make so it's interesting that you looked into something else yeah <laughs> well, for me rugby's family is a very family environment well the phd was we had a very small group we were two people So wow, it was yeah. us supporting each other. She also played rugby, by the way, my my colleague. Uh, she played rugby for a year. And, uh, but we were always supporting each other, but it was always and only the two of us. Right. I totally understand that. And I heard that a lot more from guests, that um, this experience can be very lonely. Yeah. And that's also one of the reasons that we started this podcast, because you don't really get to hear how other people in a similar situation have dealt with all kinds of struggles or successes. Mm-hmm. And by listening, we hope that people feel like they're not the only ones going through these things. Which is awesome. Yeah, I like it a lot. And it's been working so far in our thir- into our third season. So let's hear more about your academic journey then. Um, from uh, the BA and the MA, or the BSc, I have to say, and the MSc that you've done, You've done that in uh, Italy and Milano, where you're also from. And then you make this Mm -hmm. switch um, to the university here in Israel, the Technion. Um, So how did that come about? Like, when did you decide, oh, I really want to do a PhD or in this particular field and those things? I started my university when when I was already, I think, in high school. Uh, I always wanted, I was very idealistic and uh, and I always wanted to do research for the rest of my life. This is my vocation. So for me, it was always natural that I was going to end up in a PhD. How, okay. when, and where, and which topic, I had no idea because I had a very lateral movement from my high school. My high school was a technical high school for industrial chemistry, from which I moved to um, materials engineering, thinking I will do polymers my entire life. And then I ended up doing more mechanical and composites and so on. And then in my master's, like, oops, I like nanotechnology. So, And then I moved to my PhD in materials for electronics. So it's always been a bit of a swerving. Um, I, I, want, I kind of knew I wanted to do a PhD, uh, but I wasn't sure where and when and which topic. And when I was in my master, uh, my master degree in Milan, it's very different from the degrees in, the, in, in Israel. In Israel, the master degrees are very research-centered, at least in STEM. They're very research-centered and the students get lots of responsibility and they're researchers, uh, proper researchers. They publish papers and so on. While in Milan, it's very frontal lectured centers. So we had 19 courses in three semesters and all this kind of things. And, um, and only the last six months you are doing research uh, work towards your master thesis. Uh, so I wanted to perform this research work abroad. So I applied for, um, for an Erasmus 
Erasmus okay. uh, with its within the European Union, but there are also bilateral exchanges between different universities inside Iran and outside Europe. One of them was the Technion. So I and funnily enough, the Technion wasn't my first choice. Oh. I no, it wasn't. I my first choice was the KTH in Sweden, and then Göteborg also in Sweden. And then another university in Denmark. I was very fond of the north of Europe. I <laughs> thought of moving to Iceland before moving before doing my my master, and um, and then the fourth I just put Israel because I I knew that it had good research, and nobody chose it in Milan. Okay. It's not very popular, so I wanted to make sure to get out, get out of Milan and see something new. And when I was here, I and, and then I got accepted in Israel, and uh, I started bugging professors around. I got a few answers. I chose materials for electronics. And then when I came here to do my master project, my advisor, um, who was afterwards the advisor of my PhD, offered me a PhD position in cooperation with industry. Okay. And I really thought I wanted to see both world and this was not an opportunity that I was ready to miss so when I finished my master exchange I went back to Italy finished my degree four months and then came back here for a full PhD okay so you were slowly lured into it <laughs> yes <laughs> with, a, with, with a shrimp on a string like a stray cat <laughs> all right and you also said that there was a little bit of switching um of fields within the fields. Uh, I have to say, I don't know too much uh, about your field, but we'll get to that. <laughs> um, what were the, the pros and the cons or difficulties or, or good things about switching these fields? Was that easy or did you have to study more in order to be able to make that switch? I think I had to study double wow. everything, <laughs> especially because in the PhD, um, the, sorry, in the... Um, Bachelor and Master in the Technion, it's Bachelor and Master of Material Science and Engineering. And you said you don't know much about this field. So what about what what's the fun stuff about materials engineering? It's a little bit of everything. There is materials engineering in literally every possible field of different engineering and science field. Uh, which means that each university can give their own um how do you say, shape to the materials engineering degree. And the materials engineering degree, or materials science and engineering. And the materials engineering degree in Italy is very industrial-centered. We did lots of courses on how do you make uh, cables, how do you extrude cables at this speed, and uh, how do you make massive machines, and how do you make all these kind of okay. things. Uh, and this Technion, uh, the material science and engineering a degree in the Technion is very physics centered, which is something that I was very much lacking uh, when I started the PhD. So I had to study a lot of materials for a lot of uh, physics of semiconductors that I've never touched in my degree in Milan. So the con is that I had to study a lot and I felt always unpre wildly unprepared <laughs> for the day, and uh, no matter what I was doing. On the other hand, uh, it's always fun because you're not seeing always the same stuff. You're, I'm, I might be a bit ADHD, <laughs> but I have relatively 
either very short attention span or very long attention span, depending on the situations. But I get interested in something, I get very obsessive about it, and then I'm ready to move on. So once we exhausted the polymer phase <laughs> and I started the nanotechnology phase and who now I like quantum physics. Okay. And uh, and so on. So, so the challenge was also in a way a fun puzzle to work with? Yes. I mean you get interested in more in more and more topics and it's always fun to learn the new concepts. But also you have to study really hard when you're planning experiments or when you need to write a paper, all these kind of things. You might feel that your knowledge is superficial. And you also mentioned that uh, a difference between the schools in Italy and here in Israel um, are that here in Israel, the uh, the student is also really a researcher. Like they have more independence in a way. Yes, the master, the master students. Oh, right, because with the PhD, you're not sure if you can compare because you've only done it here. Uh, but no, I've only done it here. But I, I know from friends that stayed in Italy that is also very experimental. Okay, like PhD, unless you are a theoretician, obviously. But uh, in people did something which was similar to what I did here, um, under different conditions, different of course different research groups were not 100% the same but the their their work was also very experimental okay so you just get shoved into the experimental world after uh, two years of master that is fully theoretical and three years of bachelor that are also fully theoretical so here i think the master students are a bit more prepared okay um and as being a researcher and a PhD student, um, it's not only about the experiments in the lab, right? It's also about publishing, as you mentioned before. And I saw on your resume, you were also a teaching assistant uh, here at the Technion. Yes. So what is it like to teach in a different language in a different country? I mean, I taught in English. Mm -hmm. So I didn't teach, I didn't teach in Hebrew. <laughs> my Hebrew is not good enough. Uh, but yeah, it's not my, it's not my native language. It was fun. Uh, it was challenging, but not not dramatic. I, I really enjoyed teaching. I really like to break things apart in very simple concepts. And I really take joy when I see people understanding. And a bit frustrating when people still don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell them. Don't tell them. Uh, um, but uh, it, it was really fun. And uh, there was there was lots of terminology that I studied in Italian. And I brought it in English, and it was, it was really fun. Okay. Great. So when we're talking about breaking these things down, what was your research at the Technion for the PhD really about? Can you try and explain it to someone like me who's actually from social sciences? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I was in materials for electronics, and I was dealing with uh, ultra-low resistivity ohmic contacts uh, for transistors for fins of silicon germanium. What does it mean? Like when you have microchips in the computer, um, there there are some microchips that are memories and some microchips that are microprocessors. So the ones that actually do the calculations, not the not the ones that store the bits, but the ones that do the calculations and produce uh, the data. Let's say, and uh, this. 
um, processors are based on a very tiny device, which is called uh, MOSFET, metal oxide semiconductor field effect transistor. So it's tiny, tiny switches. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you have to imagine it as a, um, um, as sort of a bucket of water that is high on a, on a shelf and the bucket of water that is below. Okay. And you're trying to pour water from one bucket to the other. Okay. And in the middle, there is a tap that can close or open your flow of water. Okay. okay. That's the, that's how you make the zeros and the one. If the tap is closed, it's a zero. And if the tap is open, it's a one. Okay. Um, so, and these little, little switches are, um, are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. They're printed on silicon and, uh, they're getting, now you hear sometimes in, uh, in the news, ah, the Intel is releasing their 10 nanometer processor or, uh, the Samsung is releasing their three nanometer processors. That's actually the size or the almost the actual size of, uh, of these little switches. And there is a very big drive towards making them even smaller. So my research was in cooperation with industry, um, with an industry that makes the machinery to make this, uh, very complex, uh, microchips. And uh, they are trying lots of processes and um, they are playing with materials. So maybe we cannot make stuff only out of silicon. We can make it also out of metals and or different semiconductors like silicon, germanium. So they're playing with the materials. They are playing with the shape and they're playing with the size of these little devices. And then they cram these devices by the billions in a very small microchip. So I was studying a very specific uh, surface process to make the contacts of these two buckets, not of the top of the water, mm -hmm. of the two buckets that move the water from up to down. I was studying a very specific uh, surf surface process to make them more efficient, basically. All right. Wow, that was a good breakdown. <laughs> I do feel like I'm the student with the buckets and the switch and also um, these companies trying to make them smaller and smaller. Um, so that was good. This is a very big drive to make them, making them smaller. And now it's also a kind of, um, not how do you say, not a marketing uh, kind of thing. Like if Samsung is releasing the three nanometers and Intel is releasing the 10 nanometers. It's like, oh, Intel is behind compared to Samsung and, and it's and, like the space and race. so on, you know, it's kind of a space race, but instead of a, a race to the, to the big and to the high, it's a race down to this very, very small. Right. And these chips, they are really for anything you can imagine in devices, right? From a cell phone to a car or anything. Yes. Right. Yes. So it's very relevant There is for industry. Yeah, it's very relevant. It is. And, uh, you know, now there is a very big uh, shortage of graphic cards because everybody was buying them for Bitcoin mining. And so now there is a shortage of graphic cards. and Which is interesting because then you're the one who can develop something new? I know. That's just fun in the marketing way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Like it's, it's interesting and everybody is getting more interested in uh, what are, not everybody, but more, more and more population is getting interested in, 
what what is inside a microchip and what does it make it more or less powerful than other microchips? Also, the sheer demand of them, it's <laughs> incredible to me. All right. Well, um, you already mentioned that when you started doing the PhD, you realized that it was going to be research, but also industry uh, orientated. Yes. And you finished your PhD in 2020. Congratulations still for that one. All right. It's pretty cool to finish a PhD, I believe. <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, so at what point during that PhD did you start thinking about what to do after the PhD? Uh, was it hard also to think of what it could be, if it should be academia or maybe industry? In some way, my PhD was a bit weird because I was not allowed to publish many of my results. Oh. Actually, I, I, I didn't publish a single paper on my actual research during my PhD. Hmm. I only published a paper on my master research. And that's because it was um, secret. That's a shame for you as a researcher, though. It's a shame for me as a researcher, but, but I found out making, like, writing the paper for the previous research that altogether I didn't mind it. I, I wasn't too unhappy about the fact that I didn't have to write uh, that I didn't have to write papers. So on one hand, that made me, that, that was a big realization uh, <laughs> towards, uh, I would like to be in industry and not, uh, not be in academia for my future, for my near future, at least. Does that mean that it was difficult for you to publish that paper on your master thesis? Was that something you didn't enjoy doing? Um, I really didn't enjoy doing it, but because also it was a, sorry, but it was a half-assed paper <laughs> and the, the theory was very shaky. Uh, so, but I had to publish it for pressure. <laughs> so, um, I didn't, I didn't, I had to, I had to expose this research, this project in a, in a poster and I wasn't happy with it. I didn't really know how to answer. There was there were many more questions than answers, and I think I didn't use the right tools to solve this, like to, to find the answers to these questions. And they only brought more questions, and which I'm pretty sure this is a sensation that every PhD student right. <laughs> is uh, in every field is uh, is experiencing. But I wasn't happy with that research. Uh, my actual research was much more exciting, uh, both uh, on the experimental level and on the explanation level. Okay. So I wasn't, I wasn't having a very good relationship with the research I published. Uh, but on the other hand, I realized that the whole writing process, I wasn't enjoying it so much. There is people who live for uh, writing papers. They they find it very exciting, and they find it the process of writing. They find it very clarifying for their own ideas. For me, I had this uh, conference calls with the, with the people from the industry. And this was basically my writing process because I had to keep them updated. Mm -hmm. I had to explain them what I was doing. So that was clarifying concepts in my head as well. So I really didn't miss writing papers. Okay. And that made me realize that maybe I'm more an industry animal than an academia animal. All right, that's fair enough. And it's a very good realization. Um, academia is definitely not for everyone. Yeah. And it's also not really open 
to everyone, which is something that's very yes, helpful. exactly. Um, but how did that make you feel? Because in the start, you mentioned that you were in high school already convinced that you were gonna do a PhD and do research. Um, was it something that you needed to reinvent yourself, or was it kind of okay that you're an industry animal? I think it was a natural transition. Uh, because when I was in high school and I was a super idealist, I thought that only research in academia is free from conflict of interest and so on, which is a lie. I mean, <laughs> all academic research is financed by companies anyways. First and foremost, my very PhD, my very own PhD. Right. So, of course, there is no free research and, um, and industry industry-financed research is not necessarily, ooh, bad corporation capitalism. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. And this is something I had no idea mm -hmm. when, I was in, uh, when I was in high school. But being inside the environment, I realized that there are public researchers that are absolute crap. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. And, sorry worry. for my French. And uh, industrial-financed researchers that are very interesting and very oriented towards the progress of society. Not mine. Mine is towards the progress of microchip companies. Right. But uh, of course, this enables better, uh, better computing, more accessible computing for everyone and so on. But I'm, I'm not uh, sugarcoating my research as philanthropic. Right. <laughs> I wasn't researching a cure for cancer or... Uh, or, uh, I don't know, environmental engineering and so on. Right. Uh, but you did contribute something to the world, um, even if it's not philanthropy, which is okay. That's what all, all of us are doing. Yes, and it was, it was interesting. I think it was, I mean, it was good that academia was involved in these processes as well. So realizing that it was now going to be geared towards industry, your future, at what point during your PhD did you then maybe switch or think about how to reach that goal? Because usually you don't need a PhD to get into industry. In this mm -hmm. podcast, we've talked a lot about how important it is to develop all kinds of skills that are needed outside of academia that you uh, then need to transfer into industry. Mm -hmm. um, do you have? Did you think about that while you were doing the PhD and how did you develop skills that you think you'd need? Um... Mostly, I thought that all the experimental techniques that I was learning in my PhD were going to be useful one day in industry. Even just the fact that I was working with industry was making me having an insight towards industry and how semiconductor industry works. But of course, during, during the PhD, I wasn't really thinking of how can I apply my my skills into into finding a job in industry right now, right the moment I finish my PhD. Uh, I wasn't thinking about it because basically I was incredibly busy in trying to finish it on time. Right. <laughs> so I wasn't really paying much attention. It was mostly I'm 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 going to survive this and finish, it. <laughs> and then yes. we'll see. I'm gonna survive this. I'm gonna finish this in time. I knew from. I expected to have a PhD extension and then I realized that it was going to be only an unpaid extension. Mm -hmm. So I tried to make it as <laughs> I tried to make it as short as possible. I totally understand. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure on students 
um, PhD students to, to finish their PhD. It's a lot of work. You give up a lot of other things in your life uh, for it. Um, very busy. Publishing, usually, in your case, it was less relevant, but you needed to do these conference calls and keep everyone up to date. Um, and then also finances, right? And and uh, rugby and other things that you had to do all at the same time. Yes. Uh, so I'm very glad that you managed. Thank you. And I totally understand that maybe during the PhD, you didn't have time to think about it too much. But now um, you're actually looking for a job in industry. So how do you go about it? Uh, what does your resume look like? Is it different than an academic resume? Do you have any tips or advice of for others how to go about it or what you're doing at the moment? Uh, what I'm doing at the moment is shoving in my PhD everything I'm capable of doing. And this, I realized that after the master, uh, it would have been half half of the words and half of the of the sentences I have in my CV. Like the PhD really enriched me in the amount of things I'm able to do and uh, how can I transfer uh, my knowledge uh, into into industry. And it's mostly related to being an experimentalist. I mean, what I did basically was apply phys- like ap- um, ap- application physics. Uh, so um, using... Machines that probe so the the physics of the solid state, so electrical electronic uh, microscopes and uh, uh, electrical measurements and uh, XRD, which is X-ray diffractometry, and some of these tools are very common in the industry. Not extremely common, but they're. It's not like saying I know how to code in MATLAB, which I don't, by the way. <laughs> Uh, but it's um, it's it, they're they're kind of standard instruments that you can find in many in many industries. They're very expensive, so they tend to be semiconductor industries. So right now, my approach is to try and address either semiconductor industries that ha- I, that I know that have these kind of tools, or address the industries that make these tools. Okay. So in order to work with the experimental baggage of knowledge that I have. I'm not sure it's working because, uh, as you know, I did uh, after my right after my PhD, I, I just stayed in, uh, despite all my knowledge that I was going to go to industry and so on, uh, I stayed in the Technion for a few more months as a lab manager, mm-hmm. which was a very interesting, uh, a very interesting uh, job opportunity. Uh, but I'm ready to move to to industry now. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure that this approach works yet, right? Because I didn't find a job yet, but I also didn't apply very intensely yet. Uh, yeah, I mean, like we mentioned at the start, also you're very very pregnant at the moment, uh, so it might take some time out of your schedule. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's not that people people see me coming at the interview and say, oh, we're definitely going to hire you tomorrow. Do you think that is uh, discrimination going on? Do you think it's harder to get a job if you're pregnant? I have tried. I have tried to send a few CVs around, and of course, it's not written. I'm at week thirty-eight, thirty-nine mm-hmm. in my CV. Um, I'm not sure. I've been screened out quite a lot uh, in the shallow uh, job search that I've done. 
I don't know exactly why. It might be because my Hebrew is not native, or right. I did, or or even not native. I mean, it, my my Hebrew is very basic, so it might be because of uh, overqualification, uh, which I hope not, because there is no turning back now. <laughs> Finish my PhD. I'm proud. <laughs> uh, so I'm not gonna hide it in my CV. Um, so I hope it's not because of overqualification. It might be discrimination because I'm a woman in my uh, late twenties, and this is generally when we start popping out babies. So um, I'm not sure uh, what's the reason, but it might be also because there isn't much job offer right now for this very niche uh, type of work, which is an experimentalist in an industry. Right. I understand. It might be because of this as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure, but I, uh, I've been contacted by, uh, by a couple of industries uh, regarding my CV, and of course this emerged because, for example, in one case, uh, the the industry requires frequent traveling for training. Okay. So they. Of course, they do ask, what's your status? Can you travel? And for how long at a time? And of course, this emerges. And they've been very, very, very open-minded about it. Okay. I was sure, I was even thinking of not applying because like, ah, no way. They're, they're going to screen me out. They require traveling uh, a lot in the first year of, of work. And I, and I decided that I was going to let them decide if to screen me out before screening out myself. So, <laughs> so and looks like they're not screening me out after all. Okay, interesting. But uh, let's see if it, if it works or not. But uh, my job search have been, has been very shallow and not indicative, I think. I, I can't give good advice. So you have to update us later when you get to that stage. I will. Great. I will. <laughs> Looking forward to hearing from you. In season four. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I basically already asked you the question what are you going to do with that which is the title of this podcast but maybe i want to ask you more than as you're still looking for a job what would your dream job be oh <laughs> this is interesting i think my dream job i got particularly affectionate towards one specific machine during my phd okay. which is the transmission electron microscope um they're just these giant columns that shoot electrons th- electrons through very thin layer of matter and you see atoms and it's really exciting and i love these machines and i'm very good at them so i think my dream job right now would be something that makes me use this type of machine uh but who knows i really don't know what's my dream job right now i just know that i want to be hands-on to something like I want to do experiments I want to open machines and check what's wrong with them and and so on I don't want to be uh, just coding or or just simulating I, I really want the experimental work okay this I'm sure that's my dream job and you know materials engineering is as I mentioned, is a little bit of everything. You enter IKEA and nothing looks the same anymore. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm open to basically anything. I think semiconductor industry is very exciting and very spread. 
but uh, so I think my dream job is an experimentalist in semiconductor industry. But you know, there are so many industries that require experimentalists to to check failure analysis or 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 quality assurance, quality product. For a long time, my dream job was to be in the European Space Agency and do mm. this kind of materials. <laughs> yeah. In uh, in the Netherlands, actually, I know. in Nordvik. Yes, close to my home university, yeah. But, um, uh, but I figured out, I did a workshop in the European Space Agency, and they figure out that they outsource all the, <laughs> all the materials engineering part. Oh. There is no materials engineering directly under the Euro- European Space Agency. So, you know, maybe in the space industry one day. <laughs> Interesting. Well, there is materials engineering everything, so that's kind of... <laughs> Well, I do wish you the best of luck with finding that dream job. And please do keep us posted so we know how it goes. <laughs> yes, I found the way. <laughs> <laughs> and then we all want to know the secrets. So. Um, I have one last question uh, lined up. Um, and that's also because we know each other longer. So it's easier for me to ask a question like this. Um, you're actually probably one of the strongest persons that I know, both physically on the field, even though you haven't tackled me yet. Uh, wait until you come back. Right, right. <laughs> um, but also mentally, uh, finishing the PhD, doing that abroad um, as a woman in STEM, uh, I have a lot of respect for that. And you've also been on the national team. I didn't actually mention that, but you've been on the national team in rugby in Israel as well, not only with our team in Haifa. So that's pretty cool. Um, and for all those women who are out there listening to this episode, um, could you reveal in what it is you find your strength? Oh, <laughs> um, is it a childish answer if I say in having fun and in enjoying myself? No, that sounds good to me. It's really, it's really something that drives me. Something disgusts me. It's really hard to cope and, and do anything, you know? Rugby really really also helped me preserve my mental health during the PhD. If you're sucked into the loop, into the spiral of, I have to do more because I have to be more competitive because that's what's expected of me, um, it can be very good for an academic career, but it's very bad for mental health, I realized in my first year of PhD. I I barely took any break. I was going in and out of the lab at ungodly hours. I mean, I still did that, but at least I rationed my day. If I knew I was going to be in the lab the entire night, I didn't come at eight in the morning. Okay. Yeah, we about that. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, sometimes I had to use tools during the night because that's when the time was uh, available. So if you know that you're leaving the, the lab at two at night, do not come at eight. <laughs> doesn't matter if your advisor expects you to be there at eight. You know that you're going to be there until two at night. Don't do that to yourself. So having rugby for me was very, very important for my mental health. And I think it kind of became at a certain point a good balance uh, for me. It wasn't rugby that adds load to the PhD. So it's like, ah, you're a woman in STEM and you're doing a PhD and you're doing rugby. I think rugby helped me uh, during my PhD to preserve some mental health and also know people that are not talking about work all the time. Right, <laughs> I get that. <laughs> so I think my, my major drive is that if I have enthusiasm towards something, 
uh, I really go to extreme lengths to do it and to accomplish what I'm doing. Like to, sorry, that makes no sense. Uh, to accomplish, uh, tasks in, 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 in these fields, whether it is the PhD or, or the, or the rugby and, and so on. Right. So if you're really passionate about something, it's much easier to have the strength to complete it. Exactly. Which is on one hand, you can say, okay, but that's, that's how you are. You are just passionate, right? This is not a suggestion for everyone. This is not helping everyone. But on the other hand, you can also find out what disgusts you and what intrigues you in whatever you're doing. There is never nothing that intrigues you in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And there is never everything that intrigues you in, in everything you're doing. So some things you just have to do. You... You can't avoid them, even if it's disgusting, like write, writing your thesis, right? <laughs> <laughs> Either we're being there or you're going to be there. <laughs> you know, it, it, it just sucks. But, um, but you have to do it. And you can focus on what, uh, on what excites you to, gives you to give you the drive towards doing also the things that come with it that are not so exciting. Wow. Thanks for the tip. All right. <laughs> Then I'd like to wrap up with another few short questions. They're not really short questions, but I do expect a short answer. So let's okay. try and do that. <laughs> Hopefully. <You're> right. <laughs> the first one is, what do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? I think some of my, I can't really disclose the exact thing, but some of my measurements in the, of these little contacts that I dealt with. Okay. So you did find something new. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's confidential. That's all right. <laughs> you did find something new in your research and it did help at least for industry, but also in research. Um, will it be open to everyone at some point or will it stay disclosed with that company? I, I'm not sure. Uh, the specific measurements I'm talking about, I think they're still uh, not open. Okay. So the next one is... Who has impressed you the most with what they have accomplished? Oh, in my PhD? Could be. That's a tough question. I know. There are so many people. <laughs> wow, there is a, there is a professor in, uh, in electrical engineering who is doing very interesting stuff, uh, physics, uh, um, in solid-state physics. And, um, and this professor is young, And he knows a lot and he just, and he's working with TMs as well. Maybe that I'm a bit biased. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so he's very young and knows a lot and he's publishing and he has a huge team and every single publication of him is high quality, very well written. It's, it's just amazing. Um, and, and there was also another student I met in uh, in a conference in 2019 student i think from the netherlands oh. um from a group in the netherlands that was doing atomic layer deposition and he was doing some uh surface uh, enhanced uh, atom atomic layer depo deposition and his presentation was one of the best presentations i've ever seen I think, and we are the same age. <laughs> <laughs> so I, that was really, really impressive as well. 
Okay, yeah, sounds like inspiring people. So the last question is probably the easier one, and that is, how do you relax after a hard day of work? <laughs> I pass out. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> like if it's a hard day at work, you arrive home and you just want to faint. <laughs> so it's just the couch for you at the end of the day. Just the couch. Not even the couch, just the bed straight away. <laughs> okay. Dead. <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Um, I think it was really inspiring. And thanks to our audience for listening again as well. Don't forget to connect with us on social media, also on YouTube and our website, all with the same title, What To Do With That, uh, where the two is spelled as the number two. All right. So, is there something you already thought of eating or drinking first after labor? Oh, I want blue cheese. I want gorgonzola in, in the birth room. <laughs> I'm gonna eat it with my hands. Okay.